Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 67 My name is Dwayne Osterlund and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's difficulties, please reach out to us. I know we can help. Also, once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get us a lot of exposure, helps people find the Addicted Mind podcast, And it's great to see that people are listening to it and enjoying it. And don't forget to join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, we are on to episode 67. And today's guest is Maureen Cavanaugh. And I have to just say this was a really powerful interview and really, really moving. Maureen wrote a memoir, If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. And she shares a little bit of her story and it's just powerful. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a parent and watch your child go through addiction. It would be just overwhelming and you can see that, but you can also see her resolve and hear her resolve and her love and her support for her daughter just really comes through in the interview. So it was a pleasure to have her on the Addicted Mind podcast and interviewer. And I hope this is helpful to any parents out there that are struggling with a child who is in the grips of addiction. So let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Maureen Cavanaugh, and she is going to talk about her story with her daughter who was struggling with opioid addiction. And she's also author of the book, If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. So, Maureen, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. I think this is such an important topic and just thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about you and and, uh, to get us started. 
Sure. I always, I'm a very ordinary person, right? This, But unfortunately, my story, as horrific as it was, is a very ordinary story. There are so many people that are going through this now, so many parents that watch their kids play baseball and softball and, you know, got them all dressed for the junior prom and took pictures out on the lawn. And today they don't know where they are because they're, they've become addicted to heroin and fentanyl and we're losing so many of them, but there's so many of them out there that their parents are, a lot of people say, where are the parents? I always say here, they were right here. I was driving myself crazy, making myself sick, trying to figure out what I could do to help my daughter who didn't seem to want me to help her. Right. Right. So t- let's go back to a little bit of the beginning. How, how, how did you start to realize that there might be an issue or some kind of addiction going on? And how did it come to your awareness? So we have a, my family had a long history of addiction. I always thought I was smarter and stronger and found out after going through this that I would just nearly dodged a bullet and I was luckier. And But I talked to my kids. I have four children. I talked to them all about this because this was so prevalent in my family. I wanted them to understand that this, this is something they had to be very, very careful with. And when my daughter started to experiment with drugs and had used heroin, she came to me. Wow. And that's how I found out. Yeah, because we were very close. And I made the mistake of thinking that if she came to me once and we went out and we had her evaluated and she went to an outpatient program, she kind of scared herself right. at that point. But I, I made the mistake of thinking she would always come to me. I under, underestimated the power of the drug. So she actually said, look, I think um, I'm not comfortable with this. I think I have a problem. And you went and got help, did the responsible thing that a, you know, that I guess we think that parents are supposed to do. Right. And yet still this was more powerful. It was more, that's really what it was. I mean, it had nothing to do with whether she was a good kid or whether I was a good mother. It was, was, the disease took hold at some point. And then she started to hide things as, as people do when they're trying to maintain that addiction. Right. Where did, do you know where she started to find opioids or? Oh, they're everywhere. You know, we, I live in, lived at that time in a very upper middle class neighborhood and, you know, it was very hush hush, but I worked as a teacher in the school, same school system. And I knew there were drugs in the school system and I knew that there were, there was heroin in the area, but nobody wanted to talk about it. Right. And that not talking about it is dangerous. So it, she found it in her own neighborhood. Right. So it was right there. And, and for her, it just, I, you know, hit the right nerves. That's kind of what it is. Yeah. Hit the right brain chemistry. I hear a lot of people say that it's like that first time it was like, you know, like a warm bath, everything's better. And unfortunately you try to maintain that and it's impossible. Wow. So then, so you're going along, you think this is taken care of. And then what do you start to find out? Oh, then things just didn't started not to make sense. I became a little worried. And I mean, the real wake up call was when I had come back from vacation. And by this time she was not living at home anymore, but she was going to school and she was working and I came home and everything I had was stolen. Wow. And unfortunately it was her and her boyfriend that stole it. So that's when, I mean, that was one of the times where as a parent, you keep thinking, well, we'll fix it and it'll get better. Right. But not really truly understanding all that's involved in having things get better and also not understanding the work that I needed to do on myself in order for it to get better. Right. And I think that's a big missing piece is that 
even when we send our children or a loved one to treatment, the family kind of sits there and waits like they're sitting on an egg, waiting for them to get out, for everything to be better, and does do this hard work that the family has to do because this is a family disease. Right. And so you're there waiting and you don't know what to do. And I mean, what was it like? I mean, you know, I have young kids and I think this is one of the things that I'm most scared about for my kids too is, and I know that, you know, working in this field, it's not about being a bad parent or anything like that. This can get anybody. And um, it just scares me. And I'm wondering what what was that like to to be there and, and go, I would imagine feeling helpless. Felt very helpless. So because I felt helpless, I kept trying to do things. Okay. And as the book shows, it's there's definitely the book is a memoir and it is definitely about my journey. I mean, my journey was so interwoven with hers because I thought that if I could do all of these things to help her and to fix her and to connect her to people. But the truth of the matter was we were on two separate journeys and I was not paying any attention to my journey and therefore not really helping her. So there were things that I did that were helpful. I educated myself. I connected myself to other people. Those two things were huge, but I did not take care of myself and I didn't realize what I could and couldn't do, could and could not do. Right. So you had to, in a way, I hear you kind of saying, you had to start letting go and take care of yourself. You'll see the progression in as you read the book. And I finally get to that towards the end. That really, the, I, there's a Viktor Frankl quote that I absolutely love, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's when you can no longer change a situation, you're challenged to change yourself. And I think that that is so very true because in the taking control over over yourself and what you're able to change, that's where your power is. And when I found that and I, I started to do the things that I actually had control over, which was the things that I could do, things started to change. Wow. So you, you were able to see that. So can you share a little bit of some of the things you try to do uh, <laughs> just to give, you know, I, I imagine there's a lot of parents out there listening to this podcast and probably have gone through a lot of things to, to try and fix it. Right. What were some of the things that you can share you went through? Well, I wish that there had been you know, this is 10 years ago. So I wish there was more, there were more services than I would, if I was going through it now, I would look for somebody that does kind of what I'm doing now as parent coaching. We have recovery coaching, we have all kinds of other life coaching. I wish I had somebody to guide me through this and to kind of be that best friend that also knows all about this. Like I I didn't have that. So instead I kept trying to meet people and talk to people. And I realized I went to, finally gave in and went to a, an in-person meeting, kind of like Al-Anon, only it's a different, it's, we have learned to cope here in Massachusetts, which is phenomenal, but it was one day a week. So what I did is I created this nonprofit called Magnolia New Beginnings. And Magnolia currently has support groups all, and they're online, they're on Facebook. So they're closed support groups. They're heavily monitored to make sure that there's nobody selling anything or doing anything inappropriate in there. But they're peers, mostly parents, a lot of mothers who are going through the same thing. And we have, in all of our support groups, we have between 20 and 25,000 people across the country now. Wow. And they help each other. So this idea of peer support is enormous, you know, that an enormous help. And But I didn't have that. So I kept trying to reach out to people, reach out to people. I tried to keep educating myself. 
and I kept trying to get her into treatment. Right. So, I mean, we probably did everything. I was constantly looking for her. So I was going through like the scariest places you would never want your mother to be in. I was there. And I was confronting people that I should have never been confronting. Like I was telling you, the um, book opens with me going after somebody with a baseball bat. I'm a special ed teacher. (laughs) That's typically not part of my daily life is is hitting people with a baseball bat. So what happened? I mean, tell us a little bit about the story to get to that point. This is somebody who was the person that would hide her. And he was older than, than I am. So he was in his 50s. He was not a drug user. He was somebody who would hide her and keep her in his place. We would have her section. The police would go there. And because he would say she wasn't there, they couldn't help her. He would also revive her with Narcan when she overdosed and then text me and tell me I should be grateful to him because he revived her again. And he was the person supplying the drugs to her. Oh, my goodness. So if anybody ever needed a hit in the head with a baseball bat, it was Bob, which was his name. And I say was because Bob's no longer with us. And don't look at me like that because I didn't kill him. (laughs) Although I might have tried given the opportunity. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And that's so, that's part of this addiction because it brings people to such dark places. Yeah. I don't think anybody would have blamed me, but I still would have went to jail. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is the crazy that my life became. Oh my goodness. You know, this and with people that I wouldn't, I never wouldn't have never met and had no interest in meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, working in this field and also just you know being alive, <laughs> you you encounter people in your extended family who struggle with some of these issues as well, and you watch family members. I mean, spend so much money on treatment, lose their own retirement to try and save their children. See it all the time. Yeah, and it's just it's it's just heartbreaking. She was in over 40 treatment centers, some entry into treatment. She overdosed 13 times that brought her to the hospital. We're not quite sure how many times she overdosed because Bob would Narcan her and not bring her to the hospital. So this was going on and everybody was frantically trying to help her, but she was so immersed in the disease that she was not able to uh, follow through. As soon as she would get some clarity, she would leave treatment. And And a big part of this, I think, is... Because out of my four children, she's the most empathetic, the kindest, the sweetest. The one that I expected, like she either wanted to be a social worker or a special ed teacher. This is the kind of person she was. And it was, so she was fighting to not feel the way she felt because of all the trauma that happened while she was using. So once this takes hold, it's very, very difficult for somebody to just stop. Right and get back on the right path again. It had nothing to do with how, you know, the things that she did while she was under the influence of drugs were almost separate from who she was. Yeah, no, I hear that a lot. And and that, it's like you have all this trauma from maintaining the addiction that you, you can't get away from it because then you got to sit with the trauma and there's just too much pain. Exactly. And people who struggle with addiction need so much support and love and kindness and compassion as they find their way through it because it is so incredibly difficult. But then you've got all the family members like you who love them so much and are all of your your pain to watch your children go through that and yeah. be so helpless. I always tell people, you know, I don't believe in tough love and cutting anybody off. I think that 
rock bottom is dead. So I wasn't willing to wait for her to hit rock bottom. There was the title of the book actually comes from a time when some sober friends had brought her home after a relapse. And this was close to the end of, if I say 40 times, maybe this was number 38. And she came home and she was sitting on my kitchen floor. It was like three o'clock in the morning. And she was just so disappointed and so exhausted and so tired of doing this. Right. And I said, honey, it's, I, you know, like I think about it now, I was stating the obvious. There's nothing she didn't already know. But I said, honey, I said, I love you so much. And there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't tell her that I loved her. And then she didn't tell me that she loved me back. Wow. I said, honey, I said, I love you so much and you're going to die. And she looked up at me and she said, if you love me, you'd let me die. Oh my God, that is heartbreaking. That's where the title of the book came. Like the book could be called nothing other than that after thinking about it. But it, she was in so much pain. Yeah. And I had to really ask myself because I knew that she was kept hanging on and going back and trying over and over again, not really for herself, but because she didn't want me to have to lose her. And I had to, you know, really say to myself, why am I making this person who's in such incredible pain hold on? Right. But I, I couldn't let go. And I'm glad I didn't because somewhere around treatment center number 40, she walked in and decided that when she left, she was going to take the Vivitrol shot. Mm-hmm. And then she kept taking the Vivitrol shot and she got a job and she went back to school and she got engaged. Wow. And she is two years later, again, back to being the most phenomenal person I've ever met. Wow, that's amazing. And you just, your love for her throughout that is overwhelming. She's a special person and she's deserving of that. And I'm so glad to have her back every day. And I know that, you know, anything can happen. Right. And I'm well aware of that. But I'm now well aware of that in my, the rest of my life too. Right. I don't take anything for granted. And I love the people I love big and out loud. Right. And, uh, and you know, and I never take one minute that she's here for granted. I wake up every morning and say, thank God that she was here another day and that hopefully I have another day with her. Wow. That, I'm just kind of blown away by that story. And just to hear it, it really moves me immensely. Going back a little bit for listeners out there, you had said that you had to do some of your own work to get to this point, this kind of miracle. What was that? And can you share a little bit of that to, for the listeners? Throughout this whole process, I was going. I was going to therapy. I was going to meetings. I was trying to connect with other. Not the whole process with the meetings because I didn't know. Probably a couple of years into it was when I found my first meeting. But I was trying to, trying to be okay, but also still trying to overparent somebody who was an adult and who was not willing to accept that that help. So I was making myself sick, and it took me a long long time to get to that point of knowing what I could and could not do. And that is such a hard lesson when you're a parent and you've been doing for your children and protecting them for things and trying to get them, keep them on that right road. When you've been doing that for so long, it's, I mean, any parent, because I know with the rest of my children, there's some point where I have to say, okay, I have to back up and stop being mom now because they're adults and, and you turn into a different kind of mom. You know, you're not right. the one that tells them what to do. Did you make sure you ate breakfast? Nobody wants to hear that when they're in college. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you learn how to step back, but it's a natural process. When you have a child that is on the verge of death all the time and doing all of these dangerous things, 
it, your last instinct is to let go, and but we still have to because the gripping on to them and allowing them to maybe have us do things that are not helpful to them, very, very difficult. Oh, I would imagine. I mean, you, you want to hold on so tight because you don't want to lose them, but yeah, you can't. You can't ride the roller coaster with them. It's just, it's not good for anybody. Oh. And when I stopped doing that, she started to get well. Really? Okay. So she started to... It would be a coincidence, but I don't think so. So there's some, you know, when we look at the whole system, I think that's part of it. You know, we all have our our part to play, I guess, in it. And when we change our part, it shifts other parts. And I mean, I got help for myself. And then I reacted differently when she when she would get out. So she said she was struggling, where my first answer to that would be like, well, let me come over. Let me pick you up. Let me do this. Let me do that for you. Instead, I would say what are you going to do about that? Who can you call that you can talk to about that? Because it wasn't me. I was being mom, which is what you would say if if my son's car broke down, I would say, well, what are you going to do? Because I can't fix his car. But you don't do that when your child is struggling because you, you're scared. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to jump in and I'm going to fix this. But I was not a professional. It wouldn't have mattered. Even now, I would still not do that. I'd have to step back because I'm mom to her. Right. And that's who I should be. And I needed to hand it off to somebody, hand her problems off to somebody that uh, would be able to ha- be helpful to her, whether it be a recovery coach or her therapist or somebody in, in a treatment center that was able to get her into treatment. So kind of gave it back to her. It was hers to fix. It was never mine to fix. Yeah. It wasn't going to work like yeah. that. Wow. What inspired you to write the book? I mean, wh- where did you get that inspiration? Because that's a big, big deal. I always tell people, so I'm Irish Catholic, brought up with tons of addiction in my family, tons of alcoholism. And I learned the whole time growing up, I learned you don't air your dirty laundry. You don't talk about what goes on outside the house. And in a house and a family like that, my nickname was Miss Closed Mouth. (laughs) So, so the idea that I would write this book, that I would, I would be telling the story is, was so out of the realm of possibilities. And I had always written, but mostly fiction. And I was on in the New York Times a couple of times, uh, the story about me not writing for it. And on CNN and the Washington Post, for other things that I had done working in the recovery community. And a literary agent saw that and approached the woman at the New York Times that wrote the article to see if she would be interested in writing a book with me. And of course, he didn't know me at this point. And it was a conflict of interest. She couldn't write the book, but it got me speaking to him and I said, I wanted to write the book. And I say, I could feel his eyes rolling over the phone, you know, like, oh God. Right. And, but I, I, he goes, send me 10 pages, thinking probably that would be the end of me, you know? And I, so I sent him 10 pages. And then he said, okay, answer these five questions, two pages each. And I sent them off. And he said, okay, you can write the book. Wow. Because I can write. Right. And I think it was more of a challenge at that point, you know, can I do this? And then I realized, oh my God, I got to write a book. And I got to tell all my, like all the things that I'm not talking about have to be in this book. Right, right. Oh, but what a, what a gift to, to everybody out there because there's so, you know, there's still so much shame about addiction and it's hidden and people don't talk about it. And yeah, it was hard. It was horrifying though. It was like running down like Main Street naked. Here I yeah. am and all and every single thing that you know, you know I didn't I've been hiding. Right. But fortunately, we were able to keep our sense of humor. I don't know how. So the book is actually really funny too in a lot of spots. And I know that doesn't sound possible, but it is. 
And I hoped that it would make people feel not so alone. They would read it and they're like, oh my, and I get hundreds of, of emails and, and text messages and that say, I cannot believe you did the same things I did. I, I thought I was the only one. Oh. So it served that purpose and I'm very happy for that. And it connected people to Magnolia too. Right. We've grown enormously and that's been great because then people find each other. But I think that the thing that I hadn't thought about until I was just about done with the book is how much I hope that people would read it that think that it can't happen to them. Yeah. Yeah. And then be aware that, mm-hmm. that that's not true. It can happen to anybody because I know everybody thinks their children are perfect, but my children actually are. <laughs> right. right. And, it, and it still happened to me. So yeah. there's just, it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my, oh my goodness. So if there's a parent out there and they're listening to this, what would be the one thing you would want to tell them? Connect. Connect to other people. And it's never too early to do that. Even your suspicions about things, a little brush with something you think is minor, connect with other people and educate yourself and have people to talk to. Magnolia has been amazing for that. I do a lot of one-on-one coaching and for people that are in the middle of this, and that's incredibly helpful. But if, if that's not a possibility, Magnolia is free. We have no paid staff. All of these, all of these groups are admin by uh, other people that are going through the same thing. Between twenty and twenty-five thousand people in these groups across the country, and they have—they're incredibly helpful. Wow! What's the web address for that so that people can find it? Sure, it's uh, magnolianewbeginnings.org is the is the website for the nonprofit. And if you go onto the support page, there's all the different support groups. You just have to do is click on that. Or you can go to Facebook and look up Magnolia New Beginnings or Magnolia Addiction Support. And for me, I'm MaureenCavanaugh.net. Oh, awesome. And one more time, your book. If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. Right. Great. Thank you, Maureen. I'm going to list all that on the website, theaddictedmind.com. It'll be in the episode show notes. Maureen, I... I just appreciate you coming on. Your story is powerful and thank you. Well, thank you. All right, everyone. What a powerful episode. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 67. Once again, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really means a lot to me and gets this podcast out and continues to get it a lot of exposure. So if you've done that, I really appreciate it. Also, don't forget, join our Facebook group, The Addicted Mind Podcast. Just go to Facebook and search that and you'll find it. Click join. Love to have you there as well. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. And I will see you on the next episode. Take care. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. 
We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.